Hello, and welcome to East Drop and Get the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And it's Inception Day. Yes. We've been going through the Christopher Nolans that are showing at Cineworld. I think we've missed Dunkirk, unfortunately. I was checking and then... I, I, I don't mind missing it. To I do. I wish I had you know, paid more attention and got tickets to it because I would like to see that again. But anyway, but we've seen the three Batmans that he did. We've seen Interstellar. Yes. And now we've seen Inception, which is possibly his best film. Yes, I would say it's his best film. I had the best time during it. I found it the most interesting watching it again. I've watched it so many times before. Did you have a good time? I did. I mean, it's very interesting because I liked it the first time, mm. yeah? which is, aside from Dunkirk, which, you know, seeing it on IMAX was just such an experience that I really loved it, though, though it was such an experience of IMAX that I was never sure whether the film was any good or whether <laughs> I was just responding to my experience of IMAX. Um, but so this is really the only film of his that I think, you know, that I, I, I really liked when it came out mm. and I really like this time. Yeah. And actually, it's, it doesn't answer so much, but it certainly because really after watching all the rest, I had come to the conclusion that a he's not a visual stylist stylist. Yeah. Kind of, you know, he. He had images that were memorable, but they were memorable more for the concept than for the images themselves. Mm. And actually, this one has very memorable images beyond just, you know, how interestingly they are conceived, yeah? Mm. Uh, and my other reservation is that his films had no heart. Like, they were so cool, you know, they were cool, yeah, like the Batman films. I, I remember we had this whole conversation about you know, no love, <laughs> you know, and then Interstellar, which I thought was, you know, like Simple. overly simple, simplified. Mm. This one, I love the romanticism of it, actually. Yeah, you know. I think it's really expressive. And I think the central idea of going into dreams is an incredibly shrewd one for all sorts of reasons, um, because in that respect, in the romantic respect, it allows you to walk through people's memories, particularly, well, particularly um, Cobbs. Well, the film makes a distinction between dreams and memories. Yes, right? and he's reconstructed his memories in a dream space, yeah. and that's what is expressed. And then, and then Mal, the uh, Marion Cotillard character, his wife, yes. is this is this threatening, rich, romantic presence in all of it. She's so beautiful, and she's so great, Marion Cotillard. And the way she moves. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. So let's say what it's about quickly. There may be people who've not seen it. Um, okay. It's 10 years old, but you never know. I mean, before we saw it today, there was a, uh, a little featurette with Christopher Nolan talking about it, saying it's great to be able to represent it to a new generation. Yes. You know, it's like, this yes. film is old now. So, um, but, you yeah, know, there's going to be spoilers. We're going to get right into spoilers straight away, so make sure you see it first. Right. Inception is a, is a heist movie set in people's minds. There's a technology uh, that allows people to share dreams. It's, you know, kind of explained away with a bit of hooking up people to drips and stuff. And uh, you press a button in a suitcase and people fall asleep and, and they share a dream space. And the Leonardo DiCaprio character is the leader of a sort of heist gang, essentially. And their job is to go into people's minds and steal their secrets. And they're in places like safes. It's all very kind of uh, sort of sort of simplistically expressive. I think it really works. And the job here is to go into someone's mind and plant an idea. That's Inception. And, and the whole thing is, that can't be done. He goes, yes, it can be done. I've done it before. Mm. Um, it's a very dangerous thing to do. They have to go down several levels in the dream. So you have dreams within dreams. Mm. And as far as his character personally is concerned, he needs to get back and see his kids. The government in America thinks that he killed his wife. Mm. Um, he knows that she committed suicide, but he also knows that she committed suicide because of an idea. Yes. Because he is at fault in her committing suicide, yeah? Yeah, and so like in the that. long term he is at fault, though he didn't do it directly. Mm. And as we've said before about Christopher Nolan, we've, we've observed before about Christopher Nolan, this is a father-son thing. He wants to get back and see his kids. And also the central job, the inception job, is about a father-son relationship. Yes. Which I found, and I want to talk about that a bit, because I found that surprisingly effective. I don't remember finding it hugely effective before, because the Fisher character, who is... 
um, the guy they're doing this job on, the idea is that his dad owns this huge energy company and is dying, and his competitor hires the heist guys to give him the idea to break up his dad's company. Yes. And Which they succeed in doing. Of course, because, you know, it's a heist movie and you always succeed in heist. Um, but it's really interesting how they break it down to, uh, to the fundamentals. They go, this isn't about politics, this isn't about any of that. It's about the dad's relationship with the son, the son's relationship with the dad. And fundamentally, they get it down to, my dad didn't want me to be him. And he was disappointed that I tried. Now, we don't know whether that's true or not. This is just an idea that they're planting or they're allowing him to think that he plants. But that's ultimately what it comes down to. And, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has this line where he says, I don't want this to be about hate. Someone says, uh, I think it's the um, Eames character, uh, Tom Hardy, who says, well, I hate my dad, that's simple. Mm. And he goes, no, 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 hate's, hate's not right. Love is more powerful. Mm. And so he turns it into love. My dad loved me so much and he was disappointed that, he, that I tried to be something yes. I'm not. So they pull off the heist and actually that is always the best kind of heist it's like my aunt used to say <laughs> my aunt used to say oh the pickpockets in Spain they were so wonderful you know because kind of you know they pick your pocket you know and you wouldn't even feel it <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. and so this is a you know this yeah. is a heist film where actually they pick your safe and they leave you feeling happy and fulfilled and loved and, you mm. know, with a new direction in your life. Right. Yeah. And you come out, like, think about Fisher. This is, so this is the point is, I felt for Fisher. And the moment where he, that he is with his dad, and, or the, the imagined dad, you know, and the dad says, I was disappointed that you tried to be me. Then he opens the safe and what's in the safe is this paper windmill that, that he had when he was a kid. Mm. And he starts crying. I, you know, even though he's... Like the whole character is kind of a MacGuffin, but I really felt for Fisher then. I felt for yes for Killy uh, Murphy's character. Well, and I was happy that he got out and was kind of happy in himself. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think one of the successes of this film is what you really minimized, you know, about Batman, uh, and I think the reason why this film works uh, so well is because it lays out the rules so clearly, mm. right? So it's a complex world, and there are complex ideas in it within this world, right? So, you know, you talked about levels, but, you know, there's also the difference, you know, that of, you know, one person's unconscious entering somebody else's design, the difference between memories and dreams. Like, it's, it's a very complex setup, right? Um, but the film explains it to you, like... Absolutely crystal clear. It goes to a great length of trouble in the exposition to tell you what this world is like, how it operates, how it can be disrupted, right? So kind of when the dangers come, you know what's at risk and you respond to it, which I thought wasn't done with a Batman. Yeah. It's, also, it's done incredibly elegantly here. Mm. And that's one of the things. It's not just an exposition. The exposition is a huge part of it because you need to convey these ideas clearly to the audience. Yes. But for instance, in the very opening scene... Um, where you really don't know what's going on at all and you are learning about this for the first time mm. and you're right in the middle, as it turns out, of a, of a heist. Mm. Um, you know, you have this kind of meeting in a, in a sort of Chinese sort of, sort of bar club type of place and then people start talking about weird things are going on and things don't seem to quite make sense and then you're drawn out into this different world where you see the same characters but they're asleep mm. and they're in... Um, somewhere in maybe in like North Africa or the Middle East where there's a riot going on and you go, what the fuck's going on here? Mm. And then the film starts to combine these two. So an explosion in the upper world, as you learn that it is, turns into rumbling in the lower world and the film cuts straight between them and, and the characters notice it and you notice them noticing mm. it, you know? And then you know, it gets to the point where they, they drop uh, Cobb, the DiCaprio character, they do the kick on him they drop him into the bath that he's sort of sitting above. And as he hits the water in the lower world, in the Chinese world, water starts rushing through the windows. And you see very clearly exactly what's going on. You understand it. And there are also a couple of very interesting inserts of a watch speeding up and slowing down as you move from one world to the other, mm. which you don't see the rest of the time. It's just there right at the start to give you this sense of, of transition mm. and how things are different. I think it's incredibly elegant. And yes. it might just be the case that I have seen it so many times, I know, I understand exactly. But I don't remember being super confused the first time. Uh, I remember being a bit confused. I mean, yeah. you know, it takes, it takes you a while to figure out these things. Mm. Uh, I think he takes a lot of chances because, you know, often 
cut from one state of consciousness to another or one level to another is not signaled. Mm. Yeah, you just cut and yeah. So I mean, other aspects then let you know, right? But it isn't signaled. Yeah, you don't have like a wavy dissolve or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're hard cuts between. It's, and yeah, by the time you get to the main heist, you're intercutting between three or four sometimes different dream levels. That's right. Yeah. So so I thought. Uh, all of that was 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 very beautifully done. I think the way that the world is imagined is also kind of beautifully done. I mean, those scenes with, you know, Ellen Page, you know, with the mirrors, yeah, and uh, so she's being tested for how she can design this world, you know, and just the visual aspects of it are kind of quite stunning, really, and how, you know, they tar- you know they kind of combine rules of physics, really with like the way the unconscious works and kind of and it does so through um i want to say they're original images in some ways they're old tropes right so this sense that image of two mirrors yeah in between the characters so the characters are, are yeah, infinitely it, it, replicated yeah i mean you know that's kind of an old-fashioned image in some way but actually within this world it's very striking yeah kind mm. of uh and it it operates kind of very efficiently um, I loved all of that, but and it takes on a new meaning when she breaks it down and she's turned it into something that she builds from. Yeah, I mean, in that whole section where she she folds the city on top of itself as well, you get I think a real, real visceral experience of her uh, creativity. Yes. and her excitement at being there. And she's walking ahead of of uh, Cobb, and he's walking behind, just kind of looking after her, watching. But she's just in her own world. She's loving yeah. what she's doing. And he's explaining the rules. Yeah. So no memories, right? Yeah, don't use yeah. your memories because that's how you get lost. Exactly. So, but I think for me, the heart of the film is really DiCaprio. Mm. You know, uh, I think he's the most romantic actor of his generation. I think he's the best actor of his generation. Uh, and he turns this film into a very unusual film. You know, and now, so, uh, you know, I was... I was trolling through Facebook yesterday and, uh, uh, you know, someone on my feed said, oh, this is the best film of all time. I've just come out of, like, seeing Inception. It's the greatest film of all time. And you think, well, actually, you can understand why young men would feel that way in this film. Because it is a romance for men, right? It's about being so caught up in somebody. Yeah, and, yeah, that kind of, you know, she she invades your unconscious and you can't let go and you're completely wrapped up Mm -hmm. in this person and you're besotted with her and infatuated with her and you can't let go and you're following her everywhere. I mean, it's a very romantic idea, right? Yeah, Uh, but it's also kind of romantic through destruction because she comes in and destroys everything and she's she's an unhelpful, (laughs) she's a hindrance. And it's only by the end he learns to to accept that she's not you know she's just the version that he remembers but even that's a very romantic idea yeah no exactly like it's but it's like it's it's like a blokey way of doing it not maybe blokey is too heavy but you know like she she's threatening and she's alluring and she's a femme fatale exactly that's what i was going to say Mm. it's an archetypal femme fatale thing right you know the guy's obsessed he follows he dreams whatever and like you know she keeps you know, stabbing him or ruining his plans or ruining his life. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an... Uh, yeah, so the lighting is not noir, but actually, you know, it's part of that... If, if a lot of noirs are male romances, mm. you know, about obsession and desire and hurt and pain, I mean, you know, uh, uh, I'm obsessed with uh, this Robert Seldmack film called Crisscross, which is, you know, with Burt Lancaster, who just, you know, can't shake this woman off his skin, mm. right? you know, his ex-wife. Well, this is very similar in that way, actually. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and like in those films, part of the pleasure is, is in, in watching Leonardo DiCaprio, who seems really nice and centered and kind of focused. Yeah. Uh, and, and reasonable. Yeah. Um, be completely in love. Yeah, I mean, he's mm. kind of acting out a world of emotion that you re- very rarely see in men in, in cinema, actually. Mm. You know? Um, so, uh, uh, I think... Uh, and it was very interesting to see Nolan introduce the film and credit DiCaprio with that aspect of the film, which it seems to me is lacking in his other work, yeah, where he says, you know, 
kind of part of the success of this film is in the collaborators and amongst the collaborators like Leonardo DiCaprio was yeah, one of the most significant because he kept grounding everything back to emotion to character yeah mm. you know uh, uh, so the, the, the film couldn't just be like spectacular effects or scenes or mm. yeah you always have to ground it back in kind of feeling and character and it shows because I think this film is very much about about those aspects mm. which, which I found troubling in the rest of his work yeah and I think it's beautifully integrated as well and again this is somewhere I would say just the concept of, of the dreams within dreams and how the film uses them is really shrewd so mm. I said at first it's about the kind of multiplication effect that you know a little thing in one world becomes a huge thing in the next and you mm. can turn something very tiny into something very dramatic you know so, so dunking into water turns into a torrent um, uh, a defibrillating fissure at the end turns into a lightning storm in the world below you know, I think that's that's fantastic. And the other thing is that you can get to the almost the end of, of, of you can almost run out of time in one world. Mm. You know, so you have the thing of the um, the van is about to hit the water and you've only got so long before it does and you just cut back to it occasionally, you see it in super slow motion, it's still falling. And in the worlds below, time is expanded. Yeah, and they explain all of that actually, like, you know, five minutes is one hour and this you know, yeah. run or whatever. And what it means is that as you as time runs out in one world you can drop into a next one and have more time, develop the story more, develop the drama more, which is what they do right at the end, for instance, when they think they've run out of time, when Fish has been shot by Mal in the snow fortress, mm. and then uh, Ariadne comes up with the idea, well, no, we could, we've got to chase him down there, we can go and get him back and still finish this job, and so when you think you've lost it, you, you drop down again, and now there's more time, and not only is there more time, but there's time for a whole confrontation with Mal. Is, is the Ellen Page character really called Ariadne? Yes. I miss that. Yes. That's a bit of a cliche, really. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... The I mean, weaver of dreams, isn't it? I think so. Uh, but, and she's the architect in this. She builds the mazes. Uh, and in, in, in uh, Interstellar, the character who is selfish and lies and ruins the whole thing is called Man. You know? <laughs> and so he's... I thought, I've said before um, that uh, Nolan is not always the subtlest. Well, because I was going to say, actually, about this film, how... Um, it lends itself so easy, easily to philosophizing, right? Mm. You know, what is reality? What is dream? What is the connection, you know, between them? Yeah, kind of, you know, what role does memory play into dreams? And, you know, how are they similar or different? You know, what is time, right? Like, you know, and also kind of in a, in a more formal sense, what is time in cinema, right? Yeah, because of this thing about levels. So, you know, the film opens... It, opens up a whole series of questions and then you you find out that Ellen Page is called Ariadne and you wonder <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. Well, with, yeah it opens up these questions but you know with what level of complexity yeah <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned time because this is something that is really important to Christopher Nolan's work that we've not spoken about now we haven't had a chance to with the Batman films because they are just chronological pretty much and mm. that's how it goes there is this thing about time and interstellar that we discussed about time dilation and how mm. time is used as a resource and they can run out. And so you start off uh, uh, in Interstellar with um, McConaughey being much older than his daughter, as he would mm. be, and by the end he's much younger. Mm. She's Asian, he's not. But this is, but you know, these aren't the first films that he's played with time in, and they're not last. So he made his name with Memento, yeah. where where one story runs backwards and the other runs forwards and they meet. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Insomnia. I don't know how or if time is played within that. I can't um, remember. There's the prestige where there are nested timelines and false timelines with the notebooks and mm. the and people reading each other's diaries. Dunkirk had these three timelines, which I didn't realise at all the first time um, that that's how it was working, even though those three timelines are introduced as uh, a day, a week. Was it an hour, a day, a week? I... It's an hour for the planes to cross the channel. It's a week for the guys on the mole. And it's a day for the ship to cross. Yeah, yeah, and no, I thought that was essential. And they meet up at yeah. the end. Um, but that, I mean, it was interesting in Dunkirk, because I, I wrote about this on my blog, I wrote a review of it, and they worked well, and they also worked badly, and both of them had interesting effects, because the way they worked badly for me, is that film was so overwhelming, mm. uh, kind of experientially, that I had no idea where I was in the story. And maybe I was confused when, you know, someone showed up on a boat and then you saw them again there in the sea a bit later and you thought, you know, but it was such an overwhelming thing that I didn't realise that's how the film was structured. Yes. And then going back and kind of thinking about it and looking at it, you realise, oh, this is really clever and it's building to this, to this central moment of, of rescue. 
And you know, so I thought like actually the fact that this has been robbed from me is is it wasn't bad in the moment because I thought I'm so overwhelmed by this that I love how lost I am. Mm. And I could, was genuinely kind of shell-shocked after that film finished. Mm. And I wonder whether actually had I been more cool about it and noticed, you know, picked up how the timelines were working, whether that would have been as good. Uh. Uh, but I p- kind of picked it up later. Anyway, the thing is, that overall, there's always a thing with Nolan's films about how is he going to play with time next. I, I mean, in Tenet, you've got this thing, what appears to be a kind of localised reversing of time, which is very interesting looking. Right. Um, where you know you have like in a scene where everything's moving forward, a car crash happens backwards. You go, oh. what the fuck's going on here? <clears throat> we saw it in the trailer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And so I'm looking forward to finding out what the hell, how how he's found a new way to play with time next. Right. You know, um, time is is a way that Nolan conceives of things in cinema, and I wonder if there's a way of thinking about how, like, is it why? How is it important to him? Why is it important to him? Is it more than just a gimmick or a way of framing things? Well, I mean, obviously, time has to be important to every filmmaker, though, you know, a lot of them don't realize it. Mm. But, I mean, the way, I mean, this is almost like a kind of a, you know, a a visual illustration of what cinema can do with time. You know, just because of, you know, the same amount of time layered over different um, uh, uh, levels brings out kind of different temporalities. So each level has its own temporality. And then kind of the intermixing of them brings up the relationship between the time in one level and the time in another. Yeah, mm-hmm. which kind of actually kind of creates, I think, you know, suspense, amongst other things. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, also a, kind of a sense of interconnected worlds that have time as ex- experienced differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he does very, very complex things to narrative effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not kind of just like an empty exercise and you know, demonstrating how time can work in cinema. I mean, he does that, but, you know, it's also kind of focused in the storytelling and then generating kind of particular effects in relation to the storytelling, yeah? It is a suspenseful film, so every so often you see the van coming down and then you move to the other area and you actually have a distinct sense of what is possible within each of those levels, yeah, how much time mm. is there left and what can people do. Yeah. So I thought that was, that's kind of an amazing narrative achievement of, you know, of nothing else, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, it, it's something I, I, I kind of mentioned, I can't remember which podcast it was, but I mentioned on one of them that um, Nolan is always trying to present something that has to be seen on the biggest screen yes. and so on. And I think we agreed on that. Um, and a, a kind of a, a similar observation which I think is also true is that these ways in which time is manipulated and played with and structured can only be experienced in a film you know like like that you I mean you couldn't do this on stage you couldn't really do it in a book it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same visceral experiential yes. thing going on you can do you can do like nested timelines in the book uh, cloud atlas had that for instance mm. um, and you can do all sorts of things but in terms of you, you are you know you're you're subject to the film and it's running for two and a half hours so its experience of time is your experience of time mm. Let me mention two things in relation to that. One is something which I'd never forgotten. It made such a huge impression on me when I saw Inception on IMAX. And I suppose I'm so superficial that the most visceral element that I left with after watching Inception for the first time was uh, Tom Hardy's lips. (laughs) Right? You know, because I I remember like this huge close-up of his lips, which actually I looked for now and couldn't <laughs> see right? but I remember this huge close up of his lips and you know and they're like, they were like so plump and billowy he's got a very mm-hmm. yeah, interesting mouth uh, Tom Hardy um, you know and the effect of that is just to me inconceivable on TV yeah? mm-hmm. it's just you know to see Tom Hardy's lips in such a huge screen really you know it, it really did have an effect on me I thought it was like beautiful and sexy and so on um and then something that I'd completely forgotten, this is sometimes how interesting how you, you, you remember or how you make up the film story in your own head, you know, in spite of the plot. I had completely forgotten about the level with the snow. Really? Yeah. The, yeah despite, the, despite that being the kind of, that's where they're getting to, that's where the dad is. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. yeah? Um, well, there is something interesting in that... Um, Again, I'm going to come back to the word shrewd. I think this is shrewd that because all the action 
pretty much takes place inside dreams that are constructed very consciously. Um, the film is able to be kind of filmy. Yes. You know, so you have the kind of the James Bond snow level, and you have the urban street fight with the, the shootout in the van in the rain, and um, you have the kind of spy uh, hotel yes. level. You know, and so the film is about allowed to be kind of very self-consciously filmy and set up these worlds that are there to be exciting movie set piece. Yeah, and that actually reference the history of cinema in their own way. You know. Yeah. But maybe there's something anonymizing about that as well. Like, so with the snow level, for instance, you know, I think that's interesting. It, there's yes. a generality to to what it's presenting to you, um, which actually is not so true. I'd say, particularly at the hotel level, where you, I think, I'm going kind to of speak of my experience. I remember more about that hotel level more vividly. The conversation between Cobb and um, Fisher and the the rotating fight in the hallway. You know, I remember that more vividly. Well, but, that, but because that's so conceptually fascinating. I mean, he yeah. changes the whole laws of physics. And there's yeah. nothing that conceptually fascinating that happens in the snow level. It's just a, f- a shootout in yeah. the snow. Well, yeah. Well, I, I'm, you know, it, it yeah. leads to the thing in the room, but the fight is not a special fight. Yeah. I mean, I do think this thing of how the film draws on genres or, you know, an audience's understanding of genres and what it can expect of them is so interesting. So, you know, it is drawing on noir and romance, you know, for the whole Marion Cotillard sequences, mm. right? But it begins like that, and then it's, you know, when it descends into a kind of dystopian sci-fi film, yeah? So the <laughs> lowest level where they build their dreams and where they hope to stay together mm. is Limited. like a sci-fi dystopian yeah. Yeah, nightmare setting right yeah. you know so you instantly read all of those things just through yeah, this kind of desolate city where things are breaking because yeah. yeah so b- broken skyscrapers or bombed out skyscrapers you mm. know falling into the sea into an em- yeah, empty mm. um it is like a kind of a po- post-apocalyptic version and of course that's where their romance gets resolved yeah mm. that's where the ruins of their romance get buried yeah. however you want to Put it, yeah, because right? you've also seen it when it was perfect, when they were building it. That's you know, right. He tells you about that, and you go back and see it, and it was beautiful back then, and then you see it, what how it is now, yes. and the space kind of still exists, yes. and it's become decrepit in, in yes. the time. That's, yeah. You know something else I really appreciated even more about uh, the film this time is, so for example, to have Marion Cotillard play the object of desire, and you know, the object of obsession, and the femme fatale, and the murderous you know, uh, etc. That's not unusual. I mean, I think it's, it's very beautifully done. It's very vividly done. But actually, to pair that with the Ellen, Ellen, Elaine Page, Ellen, Ellen Page. Page character, who's the one who is the architect of these levels and who designs them and who, at the end, finds a solution mm-hmm. to how to survive them, right? I thought that was incredible because, and not just because of gender. It isn't just that it's a young woman who has the mind to resolve all of these things. Yeah, but actually that it's a young woman, yeah, that it's a mm. young person who finds the solution. I, for example, if it had been the Michael Caine character who found the solution <laughs> to it, it would have had a very different type of resonance, yeah? So, yeah, that these are the two central women in the film, mm. right? And had, had the Alain Page character not existed, yeah, the Marion Cotillard character would have seemed very much a cliche. Yeah, that right. actually the the Ellen Page character complements in really interesting ways. Yeah, um, the film's world. Hmm. Yeah. No. Well, they complement each other in terms of feeling and tone. Yes, and, and also in kind of seeming or absor- no so i was going to say in absolving the film of accusations of misogyny because you know the marion cotillard character is like a, in many ways a male fantasy right you know yeah. at the end cobb says you're the best i could do yes in my head like the film kind of yeah. comes out and maybe it's having his cake and eating it saying we've drawn a, a kind of a thin character here but he knows it yeah, but that's but also it it's also saying you were so much greater than that, which is such a romantic mm. notion, right? I I could never dream up what you were. Doing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and actually, what's interesting is that the Ellen Page character also saves Leonardo DiCaprio from himself. Yeah, mm. she's constantly she's the one who detects that it's his unconscious that he's seeing her, 
Yeah, that mm. she's yeah uh, that his memories have invaded the dream, right? Um, yeah, so she's yeah. the voice of reason and thought and resolution throughout all of that, which again, mm. you know, I find um, interesting. You know, both because she's a woman, yeah, which then complements, yeah, it's the opposite, uh, uh, the structuring opposite of the Marion Cotillard character, but also from her youth. And also what I liked is that she's not sexualized, but she's not de-sexed, mm. right? So the most interesting thing about Ariana is her creativity, right? It's the way that she weaves worlds, <laughs> right? And she can imagine and, yeah, and think, yeah. you know? Um, and she's smart, right? And that's the most attractive thing about her. But then that moment with the kiss with the Joseph Lee Gordon character, I mean, yeah, it also... Gordon Levitt, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of, it catches her in a pleasant surprise, yeah, like it's a joke, yeah, yeah, um, but it kind of, so this is what I mean, but by saying the film doesn't sexualize her, but she's not rendered, she's not de-sexed, uh, and I, I thought that was all quite unusual, actually. Yeah, it's a really pleasant moment, that, and really lovely, and I like how right she is with it, she has this little look on her face of, you cheeky fucker. <laughs> anyway, I, I love that. I love that character. I I I love the Tom Hardy character. Uh, he's great. He's cheeky. Although he, you know, uh, he has this uh, interplay with Arthur, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character, constantly teasing him, and Arthur's kind of takes things very seriously, and he's there going, "Oh, shut the fuck up!" Yeah. You know, but um, he um, he also has that thing. This goes back to the gentleman. The um, Guy Ritchie film we saw, yes, uh, where Hugh Grant's character is basically clearly gay, um, but I was saying there's an element to him where it's kind of it's like playful gayness yes. that actually straight guys do, where you know it's like mm, kissing each other mm. and uh, or, or blowing kisses at each other and kind of playfully mm. intimating uh, sort of um, sort of romance or, or playful gayness between each other. If you know what I mean? I do. And I think he has even has a sense of that here, the way he plays with. With Arthur, certainly the bit, I think especially the bit where he says, um, don't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. And he brings in that bloody great big grenade launcher. Yes, except I didn't get a sense, I'm not as clear as you that it was a sense of like, you know, heterosexual banter. Mm. I actually, you know, um, it, certainly the film open up, opens up the possibility that he could very well be gay. Yeah, no, not, I, I don't think it's, I, I, that's not what I mean when I say oh, it's, it's, it's implying that he's gay, but... But um, I think there's a kind of there's a sense of the playfulness that is predicated on that banter. Yes, um, uh, that is also a bit camp. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and well, I was going to say he's the only one that's not shown with a woman or with an interest in a woman, but that's not quite true. He actually. is a woman at one point. Yes. He, he dresses or he, he transforms into the Tallulah Riley that's sexy right. woman character and then flirts with Saito when he gets there in the lift. There you go. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I knew that, but it hadn't quite registered in that way. Mm. You know. Um, so I don't know if there's anything more to it, though, or if it's just a character sort of... Not even a quirk. I mean, it's not like unusual for guys to be like that, but it's just who he is. Also, it's his function, right? That is the... Mm. I mean, I don't know what he's called, but he's the person who disguises himself as other people. Eames. He's whatever the disguiser. Yeah. So, yeah? No, no well, I, I was going to move on to talking about actually the character's functions, unless you had more on... No, um, no, go ahead. There was a way of talking about the film that people were very keen on when it first came out, um, that it's a metaphor for filmmaking. And you can look at all of the characters as stand-ins for crew members. So you've got Cobb would be the director. And I kind of don't think it's uh, um, a coincidence that he shares some physical similarities with Christopher Nolan. Yes, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> watching this introductory film today, it is uncanny how, you know... He's dressed like him, his hair's a bit similar. Yeah, yeah. There's, something, there's something similar about it. I mean, it's kind of a... Ge they're they're generalised sort of bloke I mean, they're two guys. tall blondes, yeah. you know, so that already goes a long way. Two <laughs> tall, blue-eyed blondes. But um, actually, there was also something about, you know, the haircuts and the way of speaking, that you're very reserved, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so, he, so he's the director. Um, Arthur would be the producer, maybe. Um, Eames would be the actor. Ariadne would be the production designer. You know, that was the way that people talked about this. And, and I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but does it add up to anything ultimately? And I didn't really think that it did. But, um, oh man, I can't remember where I was going with this. Well, let me, let me pick up on that idea yeah. for a while, because I think in a way that is very interesting, because, you see, one of the things 
that I have a, not a quibble, but a question in relation to the film is this idea of a shared dream. Mm. Yeah. You know, because dreams by their nature, yeah, are individual, right? It's kind of your dream when you're sleeping. Yeah. Though of course, you know, I suppose one can talk about social ideals, yeah, shared dreams. People often talk about shared dreams, yeah? We had a dream of buying a house. Or, yeah. mm-hmm. but, but actually, I think when people talk that way, they don't really mean dream in the same sense. No, they don't mean I, dream the way that they literally yeah. mean here. So I think that the film is very interesting because the characters share a dream, yeah? They are in each other's dreams, yeah? Mm. You know, which kind of, like I said, it's, it's a question, yeah? Um, you have to make a leap that actually somebody else can share a dream. Yeah. But within that, I think this reading of it, you know, as a film, you know, is very interesting because what is a film? It is like a shared dream that people contribute to. Yeah. Mm. Everybody has its role to play in the creation of this yeah, kind of dream, yeah. which is both a dream of people, yeah, and it's the result of people's dreams. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean how romantic. well I'm glad you said that because I can't remember where I was going with it It, during the film I remember thinking something really really good about that and then I forgot it it (laughs) Um, a lot of the film works with metaphor and symbol and things that stand in for something else right mm. I mean people's security things are they in a dream or not those totems that they use. I mean, those are all metaphors, right? I mean, I think it's wonderful. Well, there's an interesting thing with the, with the totems um, that, again, this was a, a topic of conversation for a long time about the film because there was this, I suppose it was a fan theory as much as anything about Cobb's totem because his totem is the spinning top. Yes. And if it spins forever, then you're in a dream and if it falls, then you're in reality. Um, but people pointed out that's his wife's totem. Yes. You don't see his totem, do you? Well, this is the thing, right? So, the, so the, one of the ideas with totems is you're not supposed to share it. You That's know, right. When you have a weighted object, you don't let other people touch it because it's, it's only supposed to be for you to, to establish mm. whether you're in a dream or not. So the idea is that he has to have a different totem. This is his wife's. This is not his, even though his wife is dead. And people picked up on his ring on his left hand, which I was looking for a lot of the film. You know, Is it there? Is it not? Because the idea is that when he's wearing the wedding ring, he's in a dream and when he's not he's in reality and it holds up throughout most of the film so when he's in the in the real world and you get a shot of his hand and sometimes they're, they're, you know, it's quite clear that like, you're supposed to be able to see his hand in the shot mm. even if it's not you know, being pointed out his hand is bare mm. and in the lower levels when you see his hand it's got this ring on and right at the very end when he gets off the plane or, or when, he, when he returns to the plane in that whole final section where he gets back to his kids you don't get a good shot of his hand yes, and, and that's and the ending is, of course, and he spins the top, ambivalent. and it sort of wobbles, and then it cuts to black. Yeah. And so that led to this whole question of, is it a dream or not, and what's happening? And it was interesting, you know, looking for the ring, because, because one way of thinking about it is the ring thing makes sense. And when he's in, literally, the real world, he doesn't have the ring on, and that's, that's what it is. But there is another way of thinking about it, where if the real world is a dream, and he's put himself into this dream forever... What does that mean about the ring then? Because he's not wearing that ring, so it's but, like he. And is it? But like, also, I mean, sometimes you know these fans. No, 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 no. Well, let's give it a second, right? Because I think it's interesting to speculate on, and the film is inviting you to speculate on it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, with that with that final shot, it's it's asking you to ask: Is this real or not? Well, that's true. And um, and so, if the real world is a dream, why is he not wearing the ring? I think it's related to or it's similar to when Mal is in limbo with him. And she goes into her safe in her house and she spins the top and leaves it there because she wants to believe that this is a dream forever. Mm. It's like, and so like, it's, it, has he done that to himself as well by taking this ring off in the real world? So at, in the quote-unquote real world, mm. you know? So he has allowed himself to fall into this delusion. People are constantly telling him, come back to reality, you know? But maybe he didn't want to. <laughs> he's happy. He's happy. In his, I mean, and, and Mal, in fact, says right at the end in that in that confrontation scene, she says, "You live in this world of car chases and people chasing you, and the government's after you, and they're all anonymous. Like it's a fucking movie world." She says, you "That's know? true." So um, you're in a dream. No, but I, I, and he wants to be there because he can't confront reality. Um, I mean, I think 
you know, you can get into these conversations where you can see the forest for the trees. <laughs> so, you know, whilst I think it's true that the film invites that question by how it ends, you know, on the other hand, one particular answer to that question would make a mockery of the whole of the rest of the film. You know, when when uh, Mal kills us, <laughs> that's just like such an absurd, yeah. such an absurd. You can you can you can take any of a film's ideas and say, oh, you know, it was a dream. I think it's more interesting uh, here than in just your regular film. When Mal kills herself on, on the ledge, she's not in the right hotel room. She smashed up the hotel room, and then she's on the opposite ledge in the opposite building. How does that happen? But it gets past you. You're like it's so dramatic. Well, it, didn't, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't get past me. Um, you know, but I just assume that this was, you know, one of the ways that uh, people become architects of this world, really. So then the question there becomes, you know, who is the architect of this dream and who is just kind of sharing it, yeah? And he Well, that is, wasn't a dream. That was supposed to be real life. When she kills herself in real life yes. and, she, and she commits suicide off the building, they're confronting each other on two separate ledges. Yes. So she's true. in the wrong building. Which, which, and again, I think that gets past you because you're so caught up in the drama and the emotion of it, yes. and the tension, yes, and I the did, beauty. I did. You know, when the, when her, she drops her. It's her interesting because I did notice that you know, yeah, that it was opposite, yeah. And how did she get there? <laughs> um, and you know, just assume well, it's a hotel or something, yeah. Um, which is where I think that f the film has a re that really interesting thing about how did you get here in a dream you never really know and people try and trace back how they got to where they were and they realise they were in a dream that way but actually look at, look at most of the scenes in the film how did you get there that's not really how films work films don't show you how you got there you just start off you in the place you just start off exactly so everything is kind of equivalent in that, in that way yes um, okay I don't want to go down this rabbit hole <laughs> um, I did want to talk about the action because I still think it's problematic yeah yeah how so well, the film is full of chase sequences and guns and explosions. And, and the only moment that I found truly, you know, that got me off my seat was the train. Bursting through the city. Yeah. Mm. You know, so, and I, and I think that's kind of... What about the hallway fight in Zero Gravity? Whether the rotating hallway? I thought that was visually exciting, but actually I thought it was just as exciting when Joseph Gordon-Levitt... Levitt? was kind of swimming from door to door as it was when he was punching somebody else. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, that was a visual excitement that had to do with movement and so on, but didn't actually have to do with action as we understand it, yeah? Right. Uh, so so I, I, I still have a problem with the way that he films it. I have a problem with the way that he films combat. I think his combat is murky and kind of too close up and too uh, kind of shakily edited and that sort of thing. You, you get a sense of, of movement and action, but you don't see anything clearly enough. And I think it's yes. murky, but I, I did like his chases. I think they were quite clear, the, yes. the stuff with I, the car. And no, the I, don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I agree with you about, you know, the physical combat, but I would extend to the chases. I mean, who's chasing who? Why? How much time do they have? What's at stake? I mean, it just, you know, it's almost like the editing, the doll of, you know, bum, bum, bum. Mm. I, I didn't, I didn't, I think a, a, a better director of action would have gotten more involvement and also more suspense and more excitement out of those scenes. Well, I do agree with that. I mean, that's quite an easy thing to agree with. A better director of action would have done better action. But I do think that, that the, the, the car stuff is clear enough I got it you know and again maybe that comes well, down to I've seen it before so I know but um, I felt you know kind of in place and I felt I understood you, you, for instance the van the, you don't know exactly who's chasing and how many there are there are just loads it's a swarm of subconscious mm. security yes you just know it's this van is just driving away yes you know so um, I felt like I had enough well I think for that possibly because it's true mm. you know but I, I did think the whole thing with the cab and the car chase and so on, mm. it could have been made more exciting. Sure. You know? uh, I didn't, th uh, yeah. So, of course, you're right, you know, that it's, it almost seems tautological that a better director of action <laughs> would have done better action, but it's another way of saying he's not a very good director of action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think what this film shows is how good he is at structure. Yes. Um, and that 
and, and not just kind of broad structure, but structuring how one scene moves into the next and back and forth. Like so, the actual shots themselves, um, and the and the specific edits in short sequences might be unsatisfactory. But the way in which he intercuts from one place to another and keeps you kind of situated in the story, I think, is excellent. Yeah, that's and that's and I think it's related to what I was saying about the Dark Knight, where there's that whole segment where you move from set piece to set piece, which I loved. I love the I love the the movements and the structuring of that. I think that's happening here in a big way. I mean, because this is going between levels and different areas, and you constantly know where you are. Yes, I mean, well, I mean, for me, another way of putting it was, I think all of the Batman films are very overrated, you know, and I think this one's really held up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, uh, and and actually, it was interesting to hear Nolan. Uh, introduce it and say, yeah, like it's held up, and this is how we filmed it, and this is how we made these choices, and we tried to put as few digital effects as possible because we thought they would date quickly. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> you know, I thought the visual imagery that seemed the weakest mm. was you, when um, they're in that cafe and the world is dissolving around them, and you just get shards. Right. Oh, the world explodes when Ariadne realizes she's in a dream yeah. in France. And that really does look like, you know, the kind of thing I do in Photoshop. Now. That didn't look great. And also there were some digital effects where there's falling from the tall building towards the end that didn't look great. There were one or two things that I'd noticed. Yeah. But on the other hand, the city folding in on itself. Yeah, that was great. Looked as amazing now as it did then. Yeah, it's uh, true. Anyway. And actually I think so I suppose what I wanted to say is that it's true. He was right. <laughs> you know, those are the things that have held up least well. But also, I think, uh, you know, to credit the film, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's something that I always think about Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 as these films where the CGI holds up. And in some ways that's true. I think particularly if you look at the the night scene with the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, it really holds up. And there's this whole thing about... Um, the better the lighting and the more clear the lighting of CG, the more obvious it is that it's CG. Mm. And actually doing things with in darkness or with just the key lights and reflections actually is a way of making your CG fit into the scene much better. It tends to look a lot better. Mm. So the T-Rex really does. Whereas the Brontosaurus, or Brachiosaurus rather, at the start, when they first see a dinosaur, looks plas- you know, painted on. Mm. But it doesn't matter. Right, it looks amazing still. And the same thing in Terminator 2. There are little details, like when... Um, uh, I can't even think of one necessarily offhand. Maybe when the hooks are in the back of the car and they melt and go back into the guy's foot. You know, the the, the, melt, the uh, liquid metal Terminator. Um, that still look great. But then there's a shot, for instance, where he walks out of the fire in the, uh, in, in the, the storm drain in L.A., and there's fire behind him, and it's all reflecting off him. It's very, it's a full body shot. It's very, very clear that it's a CGI, and you can tell how mm. you, know, you can see where it's been placed into the scene. It's very obvious how it might look better today, but it doesn't matter mm. because it works. Because you're with the characters, you're with the film, you understand its tension. The whole thing in that is like, oh my god, they still can't kill this guy, mm. you know, and he's just striding out of this thing. So, so I guess you know, it, it, a lot of it depends on your investment mm. in it. Because the reason I think those films still hold up is because I still believe it, even if other work, uh, other CGI work may look comparable or better mm. in you know, subsequent years. Yes. I just don't care as much and I, mean, I don't buy it as much these days. I think the conceptual element is important. I think the stru- you know, you've talked about the structure. But again, I just want to um, highlight what I see as absent in the other Nolan films and which you know, a different generation of people would have called heart, right? Yeah, a kind of inception for all of its pyrotechnics and all its conceptual sophistication also makes you feel, yeah, for, mm. um, for DiCaprio, in fact. You know, so, so and, and, and it earns those feelings that it incites, which I think, for example, Interstellar didn't. Yeah. yeah. I also think it makes you feel for Fisher, as I said, and I also think it makes you feel for Saito, in that shot or a couple of shots where they wake up on the plane, they've been through this whole thing, and Cobb is looking around, kind of stunned, and the other characters, uh, Arthur and Ariadne, look at him with these kind of smiles and mm. nods, and he's just sort of stunned at what he's been through. And then you get to Saito, who's been in limbo for fifty years, yeah. and in a second he's woken up back with everyone else on this plane, and you kind of think, what's going on in his head? 
because he's been there. Yes, he was my least favorite in the film. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why is because I couldn't understand large chunks of what Ken want, what Tanaka was saying. Yeah, I know what you mean. I understood more of it this time. But yeah, I'm sure that on your fiftieth viewing, yeah, it becomes exactly. clearer. <laughs> but but still, and actually, this is a thing with Nolan as well. That's not just about the clarity of his accent, because I think it does come down to his accent, mm. um, but also about the clarity of Nolan's dialogue generally. That you kind of miss things. I th- we didn't mention Interstellar. There was a whole when we first saw Interstellar at the the giant screen in Birmingham mm. together. There were signs on the door saying, "Don't complain about the audio. This is how it's supposed to be mixed." And you were missing lines of dialogue because the the, the mix was so loud beneath them. I know. And there's think, elements of that here where I well, felt, but I think the thing with Ken Watanabe was different. I mean, yes, you know, yeah. I, I mean, it was the accent, but nonetheless. There is post-production, right? You could redub the dialogue, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, well, this is kind of what I'm saying. Like Ken, Ken Watanabe, I think is a different is a different thing. You know, it, it is about his accent. Mm. But what I'm saying is, like more generally, Nolan has had he had complaints about Bane as well the first time. And actually, when we saw the Dark Knight Rises the other day, we saw the version that has now become the official version, which is where Bane's dialogue has been kind of cleaned up. But when they first released. Uh, I think the, I think they released the first six minutes of that film before some other film um, to get people hyped up, and people couldn't understand Bane in it, and they were complaining about it, and so the cleaning up of his dialogue was a response to that. Mm. Yeah, there's a thing in Interstellar about about the dialogue being uh, unintelligible a lot of the time because it's just too loud mm. to hear. Um, Dunkirk probably had some of that, although it may be less important in Dunkirk because the overall sort of, maybe that's what led to me being at that overwhelmed state, and I loved. Mm. I can't remember to be honest, and the, and I think it happened once or twice here as well, which I didn't remember or didn't expect to lose lines of dialogue, not just Ken Watanabe's but other characters' lines of dialogue in in the sound mix. So it's definitely something that is common or has become common to Nolan's work, and he's also well known for having a loud soundtrack, mm. a, a, a particularly loud score that runs over everything. And this is the film that started off the boom boom. Uh, sort of thing that you got in trailers constantly after mm. that. Hans Zimmer doing the bomb bombs, and um, <laughs> which come from Je ne regrette rien. Uh-huh. You know, the, the film basically is showing you when when the music plays and you slow down into the next mm. level. It, it it goes from da 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 into bomb bomb, and so he's put that in the score. You know, mm. built that out of it, and and that to kind of try and bring that all together I think to Nolan like that is a huge part of the cinematic experience he said in that introduction before the film began you want to see this on the biggest screen with the biggest speakers he's talking mm. about the score with the sure. you know, the loudest speakers um, I, I, I only want to say one more thing and that was um, what a pleasure it was to see images that were so textured yeah mm. so you know you saw people's skin but the image also had a softness and it was very beautifully lit it was very glamorously lit i mean again i can't help but think you know like that something is being lost with the loss of celluloids yeah mm. um yeah there's a there's a, a particular grain yeah uh that the film has that adds a kind of depth and you, I really felt it, you know, in this film, just mm. on the faces of uh, DiCaprio and Cotillard in particular. Yeah. yeah. But throughout, actually, I think even Michael Caine, yeah, those scenes mm. in the Sorbonne or wherever it's meant to be, right, it's kind of, you know, uh, he's so well lit, yeah, and he, he seems to have, like, just to, his skin is so white, yeah, but... You know, I think because of the grain, you actually don't see his pores or his pimples or whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah, so you see very, very clearly, but it has kind of a, a texture. And a softness. A, yeah, and a softness. Mm. Uh, this was all shot on 35mm, not a frame of IMAX. Right. Which has become, you know, Nolan's thing. Right. And was a little bit before he used it in The Dark Knight. Yeah. But not a frame of that here. Well, I was speculating because, you know, kind of, I wasn't sure whether it was shot on, on celluloid or not. But it's almost like I, you know, my gut instinct when watching it was that it was, and that you could tell. Yeah, Nolan's uh, a big celluloid guy. He's like maybe the only times you ever really hear him speak in public are when he's 
backing up celluloid mm. and saying it's great and we've got to save it and we've got to keep using it like him and Tarantino and a couple of others talk about it a lot right. um, so he's, he's very well known for that yeah, yeah well you know I think you can tell um, anyway any last thought um, I, want, I, I want to complain about two lines of dialogue Okay. <laughs> um, huh. I really do, and I think these are clunky I, th- there's the bit where uh, they're training Ariadne for the first time she's just woken up from her first dream um, in uh, in Paris where she explodes all the crates and uh, Cobb says give us another hour uh, uh, give us another five minutes sorry Cobb says give us another five minutes and Ariadne goes well we were in there for at least an hour mm. and then uh Arthur, who's running the dream, says, well, they say, your time gets longer, and he says, five minutes in the real world gives you an hour in the dream. And I thought, that's so shit. Like, because basically what she's, she's guessing, like her, the idea is that her time perception is that this has been an hour and actually she's finding out that it's not. But then that her guess, her estimation, turns into exactly the same numbers precisely, I really didn't like. There's a better way of writing that scene. Mm. You know, they might have said, oh yeah, your time perception ain't that bad, you were right, it's an hour. You know, something like that, just a line that made it more natural. Didn't mm. like that and it still stands out to me. And the other one is, I really hate this line, and you might have missed <laughs> it because it's one that Saito says. Uh-huh. Um, it's when they're on the rooftop and they're talking about how they're going to get into the father-son relationship. And it's Eames, Cobb, and uh, Saito. And Eames says, this comes down to the relationship with the father. What's that like? And Saito says, difficult. But the rumours are, it's quite complicated. And you're like, oh, of course it is. <laughs> 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 oh, what a rumour. <laughs> don't tell me anything. All right, so if that's your biggest quibble... That is my biggest quibble with the film. But um, it is a big one. I hate I s- that line. <laughs> Anyway, I'm very glad uh, that we saw it. Uh, I'm very glad to have seen it again. Mm. Uh, it really does hold up. And actually, I'm also glad to have seen it again because I can't tell you how low my estimation of Nolan has had been. been going <laughs> into this. Right? I know, you've been really ruining my, my kind of uh, love of his films because the Batman ones are full of issues. They really are. They really are. And Interstellar is his worst. So yeah. we've seen, like... So, you know, the worst examples of his work. I think he was also, I, f- I feel a little bit, um, what's the word, backed up by Nolan's yeah, own description of, you know, going into Inception because he said, you know, I wanted to have, I forget what he said, something like the skills and experience, you know, of working on a big scale before going into this. I, that he'd had the idea before, but he felt he needed more. Yeah, I think he presented. I think he presented this film to Warner Brothers after Insomnia, which was two thousand and two, and there was like an eighty-page treatment for Mm. it. And I mean, one thing they probably would not have had the money at that point to do it. Like he needed to build up a a profile. Mm. But I think it's right to say, you know, he had the big film experience now. Yes, he could put this together. But but actually, I suppose what I wanted to say was to turn this around because it kind of confirms my estimation that actually he didn't have enough knowledge and experience in the Batman films, that they are overpraised, that he himself probably recognized all of these faults that there are <laughs> in these films. Yeah, that might be true. So. Although, although the Rises came after this. This was in between The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Ah, right, okay. Um, well. but, I think, but I mean, I think we were agreed in some respects that his technique had improved between mm. The Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Yes. Although I'd say this is... Far superior. <laughs> Far superior, and with the exception of Dunkirk, which I can't remember well enough, and maybe um, maybe actually Memento and the Prestige, you know, in their own ways, were very tightly yes. put together and made. But in terms of the huge films, the big blockbusters, mm. this has to be um, the best example of what he can do. Yes. And I think it's a film where he understands his film very, very well. He understands his world. He understands exactly what he wants to get across. There doesn't seem to be like a foot out of place here or a mistake mm. or anything that's significantly flawed. Except for those two terrible lines. Except for those two terrible lines, which, <laughs> which you know, you'd think uh, eight years or more in a script could have, could have ironed out, but there you go. <laughs> all right. Uh, so shall we wrap up here? Yeah. Uh, so thank you all very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Yes, and if you did like this conversation, this is, uh, uh, what's the uh, like and subscribe. <laughs> yes, like, <laughs> you share, bums. And subscribe. <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs>
<laughs> it does help, you know, if you give us a rating on the on the uh, iTunes or something, something like that, it does help. Yeah. So we'd appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>